On the last episode of the Pop Culture Retrospective podcast, we talked about some of the famous cartoon and animatronic bears of the 1980s and 1990s. We went over Teddy Ruxpin, the Care Bears, and the Gummy Bears. I really enjoyed putting that show together, so in that same vein, I thought today's show could be sort of a branch off of that topic. With that being said, on today's show, we will be taking a look back at some of the more bizarre toys and collectibles that experienced some serious surges in popularity, followed by a steadfast decline. These are all items that both my sister and I enjoyed and collected, ones that in hindsight were all just, well, strange. We'll be discussing Furbies, Beanie Babies, and Trolls. All of these creations have some pretty fascinating backstories, so let's get to it. And before we get into the show, if you are a listener in Maine and are in need of any photo services, please check out today's sponsor, Amy Lewis Photography. That's right. I am a photographer, a natural light portrait photographer, as a matter of fact, who owns my own business. And, you know, besides being a podcaster, I'm also a photographer and a parent, because basically my life can be summarized in three Ps. Visit www.amylewisphotos.com for more information. A vast majority of my listeners come from my second home state, which is Maine. I take photos of families, seniors, couples, kids, and more. And uh, just so you know, putting together this show is not free. So if you want to support a local business and you live in Maine, go to amylewisphotos.com. But let's get back to the show. With all that information in hand, grab your tie heart tag protector, your troll doll hairbrush, and some nail polish for your Furby's toenails. Here we go. Hello, and thank you so very much for tuning into the Pop Culture Retrospective Podcast, a show inspired by and in memory of my big sister, Rebecca, and her love for all things pop culture, especially the people, places, and things of the 1980s, 1990s, and early 2000s. My name is Amy Lewis, and I'm your captain aboard this pop culture time machine, which I've been a captain of for two and a half years. Anyways, you are tuning into episode number 54, Bizarre Toys and Collectibles of the 1980s and 1990s. We begin our journey with everyone's favorite audio animatronic owl slash bird slash robot slash weird, the Furby. The Furby was first created in 1998 by Tiger Electronics, which was owned by Hasbro. It took over a year and a half to create due to the toy's ability to move its eyes, open and close its beak, and talk. Furbies looked eerily similar to Gremlins, which were in a movie from the 1980s. Like gremlins, Furbies were small, fur-covered creatures with pointy ears, a tuft of hair at the top of their heads, with small feet sticking out of their rounded bodies. When a Furby was first purchased, it spoke Furbish, which was essentially gibberish. As the owner of the Furby spent more time with the toy, it would gradually start speaking more and more English. We were all sort of convinced that Furbies got smarter and smarter as time carried on, but they were actually programmed to progress the more it was turned on. What's that? Me up. It's my Furby. Furby loves Tickle me. Furby, the first gigapet you pet. Oh, pet me. Teach to say her name. Me, Noodle. Play games. Peek, Bab, Boo. And love you, Bab. Oh, oh, achoo. <laughs> Your Furby sneezed. Achoo. And gave mine a cold. 
Furbies made their first appearance at the American International Toy Fair in 1998. By Christmas of that year, they became the most in-demand holiday toy, selling millions during their first year of release. The supply could not keep up with demand, so the prices for Furbies started to go up. Originally, they were sold for about $35, and as demand increased, the price went to over $100. 1.8 million units were sold in 1998, and 14 million sold in 1999. In total, over 40 million Furbies were sold during their peak in popularity. And guess who didn't have one? Me. Furbies became so popular and so quickly that they were sold all over the world. Their ability to speak was translated into over two dozen languages. There were a multitude of fur color and eye color combinations of the creatures. In fact, there were over 1,000 different versions of Furby. To appeal to boys, Furbies were also given the ability to burp and fart. Yeah. They missed out on an incredible market opportunity, though. Even with the ability to burp and fart, the toy's name stayed the same. What Tiger Electronics should have done, though, is refer to them as flatulence Furbies, okay? What a bunch of idiots that they didn't think of that themselves. Also because of their incredible popularity, a made-for-TV movie was released. It was called Furby Island, and it tells the story of a girl who, with the help of her family, rescues a group of Furbies from a terrible villain. And you know what else sounds terrible? That made-for-TV movie. Anyways, my sister fell right into the Furby craze and had one of her own. Seeing as how they first came out in 1998, she was either a senior in high school or had graduated already when she got one, so she certainly didn't fall into the typical demographic for consumers. But that's one of the things that I loved about her. She thought Furbies were cool, and so she got one. And she could do an incredible impression of them, including their ability to say yum, which I'm not doing a good job of saying, which she repeated over and over again. She kind of had that uh, Uncle Joey chipmunk voice thing down, which she could apply to the Furby's voice as well. She was very talented at that kind of stuff, and I could never do it. She also painted her Furby's toenails. I want to say the polish color was either silver or black. By 2002, the Furby craze was over and they were discontinued. There have been several incarnations following the initial release, one in 2005, one in 2012, and one in 2016, which could be controlled by an app. But no matter how many new versions come out, nothing will ever quite match the magic of the initial release. While we are on the topic of sharp rises and falls, I'd be remiss if we didn't discuss Beanie Babies. Beanie Babies were created by Ty Warner, who started his toy company Ty in the early to mid-1980s. He is considered sort of a genius of sorts when it comes to plush or stuffed animals, as me and my sister said growing up. His business started out of his home in Oakbrook, Illinois, which is a town or two over from where I grew up. At one time, Oakbrook was home to Hamburger University, a branch campus of the school owned by McDonald's. I used to ride my bike there all the time. It was beautiful. Are you jealous? You should be. More on McDonald's in a moment. Warner's childhood was actually very traumatic, as I came to find out. His mother was allegedly schizophrenic and was often unstable, and his father was abusive to his sister. Warner also supposedly struggled with social anxiety, and even during the height of his fame and wealth, he didn't go out in public very much. He attended just one year of college in Michigan, and the only person he really spoke to frequently was his sister. 
Beanie Babies were first introduced in 1993. At first, they were a collection of various little bears in several colors that were soft to the touch and filled with bean-like plastic pellets, which made it easy to display the bears and position them sitting up. Warner made some critical decisions which drove up demand early on. First, he refused to sell the Beanie Babies in chain stores like Toys R Us and Walmart. He also retired certain Beanie Babies with no notice, also driving up demand. He would often hint at retirements on the Thai website, which I'm sure took 10 minutes to load in the mid-1990s. Anyways, this led to a market of rare Beanie Babies, which, again, drove up demand. Thai was one of the first companies to use a website to connect consumers with their products. It was incredibly successful, even though only about 15% of the U.S. population was using the internet in the mid-1990s. Can you believe that? Soon, Beanie Babies were the hottest item on store shelves. Many people believed they should invest money into purchasing Beanie Babies because they may be able to pay for their kids' education with the earnings. Most ended up with a pile of Beanie Babies that would soon be worth nothing, but some early traders of Beanie Babies could earn money. One used the funds she earned by reselling Beanie Babies to pay for an adoption, and another used funds to pay for their kids' braces. As a matter of fact, in the early days of eBay, approximately 10% of all sales on their site were Beanie Babies. Warner was approached for partnership deals all the time, but most of the time he turned them down. However, when McDonald's brought up joining forces, Warner decided to go for it. First I got Pinky, then I got Pinky. I got Pinky and Patty in the same week. What, Vanessa catch something? Teeny Beanie Baby items. Now at McDonald's, your kids can get Teeny Beanie Babies in a Happy Meal. Real Thai Beanie Babies in a mini size. To toss, tuck, or just plain love. One's in each $1.99 hamburger Happy Meal you buy your kids. This uh, Teeny Beanie Baby items, will she outgrow it? Not necessarily. He wanted to help expose Beanie Babies to individuals with lower incomes, and he thought if they were utilized for Happy Meal toys, he could accomplish his goal. However, although he probably did expose a whole new sector of the population to the world of Beanie Babies, this further fueled the craze which was created by the people who could afford excessive amounts of the furry creatures. Phones would ring off the hook at McDonald's locations all over the country with collectors looking to get their hands on the latest Beanie Baby. In 1998, Beanie Babies earned about $1.4 billion from sales. During the holidays that year, all of the Thai employees associated with Beanie Babies got Christmas bonuses equivalent to their annual salaries. They were also given a unique Beanie Baby that would later be sold by several employees on eBay, some for up to $5,000. At the height of their popularity, Warner's net worth was over $2 billion. My sister and I were given several Beanie Babies during the height of their popularity. We even went so far as to buy protective cases for the Thai heart tags just in case they ended up being worth a lot of money. Even my grandmother, who we call Obachan, I've brought her up many times in the show, she's from Japan, was a pretty avid collector of Beanie Babies. She takes meticulously good care of all of her belongings, always has, and as such, her Beanie Babies were all on display in fiberglass surround cases with the tags also protected. She liked to point them out to me and my sister whenever we came into her room, and I apologize, this is me and my sister's impression of her, because we adore her and she has a very distinct accent, and I'm sure this sounds nothing like her, but this is just how we hear her when she talks. 
You see this uh, a purple one with the right with the white rose on it. This one for Princess Di. She she died. You see this a white one with the flag. This is for Japan. Someday these might be worth a lot of money. They're kind of cute, no? They're kind of kawaii. <laughs> that was awful, but you get what I'm saying. Warner had a reputation for having a short fuse and being a bit on the greedy side. For example, after some of his staff set up a Beanie Baby booth at a trade show, he destroyed the booth feeling like it didn't look like what he had envisioned and it just didn't look right to him. The staff members had spent all night putting it together. He sort of went on a rampage and was apparently swearing at the staff about the booth. Maybe if some of the employees threw a Beanie Baby at his head, he would have stopped. Have you ever taken a tie tag to the eye? It's not pretty. Or maybe they could have pulled a Rosie Perez and thrown a chicken wing at him like she did to Don Cornelius. Anyways, another example of his bizarre behavior came when his father passed away. He waited to tell his sister about their dad's passing until after he had a chance to clear out, and perhaps either save for himself or sell, his father's rare antique collection. Besides bears, eventually Ty released other animals in their Beanie Baby line. At one point, there were frogs, dolphins, and birds, among many others. Warner knew that at some point, the Beanie Baby bubble was going to burst, and by 1999, popularity was starting to die down. The company was about to halt production of new Beanie Babies. They even went so far as to create a Beanie Baby called The End. The company asked the public if they could continue to produce Beanie Babies, and the response was overwhelmingly yes. So, although there is no longer a Beanie Baby craze, they continue to be created to this day. Warner would go on to get into some trouble with the law for tax evasion. He also seems to have spent a lot of money on plastic surgery. Perhaps creating Beanie Babies and attempting to look younger are a part of how Warner has dealt with his traumatic childhood. Despite all the ups and downs of his success, Warner has donated hundreds of millions of dollars to charity, including organizations that are helping people in Ukraine. His company also created a special Beanie Baby named Max, and 100% of the proceeds are going to an organization called Next for Autism. According to their website, Next for Autism transforms the national landscape of services for people with autism by strategically designing, launching, and supporting innovative programs. We believe that individuals with autism deserve to live fulfilling, productive lives supported by excellent services and connected to their communities. End quote. I am definitely partial to their mission because my oldest son is living with autism. I can certainly appreciate someone using their earnings to help others, especially benefiting an organization that helps people with a disability that is so often misunderstood. If you are interested in learning more about Beanie Babies, check out the book The Great Beanie Baby Bubble. Mass Delusion and the Dark Side of Cute by Zach Bissonette. HBO also recently released a documentary called Beanie Mania on HBO Max. God, I wish I had a subscription to that. Ugh. So many streaming services, so little time. You should also check out a hilarious sketch that aired on SNL somewhat recently. In the skit, a young couple quit their jobs because they had invested in Beanie Babies thinking it was their life savings and they could live off of it. Their friends inform them that Beanie Babies are essentially worth nothing now, and the couple freaks out and smashes the bookcase they have full of Beanie Babies. I'll post a link in the show notes. And on that note, let's move on to the infamous trolls. You know, the tan plastic figures with the crazy hair. They actually date back to the 1950s and a Danish fisherman named Thomas Dam, who was also a woodcutter. 
Dan wasn't a huge fan of fishing, even though his father was one. He didn't find it all that interesting. He wasn't quite strong enough for the rigors of fishing, and he was more interested in art. He would often get distracted when he was in school with drawing. Prior to these roles as a woodcutter and fisherman, though, he was a baker, but he lost his job when the local flour factory closed during World War II. He actually shoveled snow to earn extra money for his family. At night, he would carve wood as he sat by his fireplace, trying to think of what he could do to help support his family financially. He created a troll-like doll, not exactly what they look like now, for his daughter when he couldn't afford to buy her a traditional Christmas gift. He called the troll he gave her a good luck troll. He often cut other creatures and figurines out of wood. His wife encouraged him to sell them, so he went to the nearest city and sold them door to door. Thomas Dam sold all the figurines during his initial experiment. They would continue to sell like hotcakes, and he became well-known in nearby communities. Which makes me wonder, did his wife say, Damn, Thomas, good job. There will be a lot more damn jokes coming up in the next few minutes. Sorry in advance. Eventually, Dam was commissioned for larger projects. For example, a Swedish department store asked him to make a sculpture of Santa Claus. This led to an additional window display, which included Christmas elves, which were essentially the precursor to the infamous and official troll doll that we know today. Customers loved the dolls, and requests to purchase them came flooding in. The original troll dolls were time-consuming to make, so Dam shifted the design from hand-carved wood to a rubber material. The design pretty much stayed the same. The trolls were sort of so ugly they were cute. They had big ears, a big nose, and bright eyes. Part of the reason why Dam created trolls is because trolls are actually a huge part of Danish mythology, which I found out. A small factory was built in 1961 and utilized PVC plastic for the trolls, which is still used today. Further, sheepskin was used for the hair. Dam created a company called Dam Things to market the trolls. I wonder if parents in the 1960s, during the peak of popularity, thought to themselves, I'm tired of seeing these damn things. Anyways. As popularity increased, knockoffs were created left and right during the troll heyday in the 1960s, which I just mentioned. There were knockoffs like Fawny Trolls and Lucky Schnooks. That's a pretty funny name. Even Lady Bird Johnson was a huge fan of trolls. Thankfully, damn things at one point settled copyright infringement so no one could create troll-like dolls or sell troll merchandise without permission. I bet Thomas was tired of people impersonating his damn things. Anyways... Eventually, the fad faded, but once the kids who got trolls as gifts in the 1960s became parents in the 1980s and 1990s, trolls made a comeback. And me and my sister fit right into that demographic. We fell in love with trolls, and I remember our grandmother, not Obach and our Japanese grandmother this time, but our Polish one, taking us to gift shops near our house to hunt for the newest trolls. I believe we had some sort of basic plain trolls, and also a troll with goggles, a snorkel and flippers, a skateboarding troll, and a troll with a rain jacket and rain hat. I wish F stood for fantastic. I wish kids got to do the grocery shopping. Ew, yuck. When you wish on a treasure troll, who knows what might happen? Treasure trolls are the only trolls that have a jewel in their tummy that you can wish on. What would you wish for? <laughs> I imagine we had about a dozen or so trolls, and for the life of me, I have no idea where they are. We have some of our Barbies, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Dollhouses, stuff like that, but I have no idea where the trolls are. 
Whenever I find and open that box, though, I'm sure I'll be startled when a bunch of wide-eyed, wild-haired rubber dolls are staring at me. Trolls reached their second peak in the early 1990s, and we were there on the summit. You know what I'm saying? See what I did there? Despite the peak in popularity for trolls being long over, there continues to be interest in the colorful creatures. For example, there is a woman named Sherry Groom who has over 8,000, yeah, 8,000 troll dolls. Her collection is called the Troll Hole, say that 10 times fast, where visitors can see the figures as well as tens of thousands of troll memorabilia. The museum, that's right, it's a museum, that's what she calls it, is located in Ohio and is open Tuesday through Sunday. General admission is $12. Good Lord. There is a coffee shop on site and an adult show after hours. I'm not making this up. According to their website, quote, if you thought trolls only looked funny, you're in for a treat. It turns out that they all think they're comedians. Rated PG-13. End quote. There has also been a resurgent in awareness of troll intellectual property with the release of the Trolls movie in 2016. The movie stars Anna Kendrick, who is from Maine, apparently, and my imaginary husband, Justin Timberlake, in the lead voiceover roles. Timberlake was nominated for an Oscar for his song Can't Stop the Feeling, which I swear everyone made a dancing video to on the internet. Also, Trolls World Tour was released in 2020. Thomas Dam passed away in 1989. Sadly, he didn't get to see the resurgence of popularity of the troll dolls or some other legal and financial troubles his company would get into. However, decades later, the Trolls movie premiered in his home village of Pandrup, which was a first for a major Hollywood movie. Dam's descendants reaped many of the benefits of the film's successes. Hot damn, we rich! They all cheered when they received royalties from the success of Trolls. Okay, that didn't happen, but I had to get in. One more damn trolls joke, okay? I hope you've enjoyed this look back on some of the more bizarre toys and collectibles of the 1980s and 1990s. What seems so, well, bizarre now to me as an adult was so fun and exciting to me and my sister as kids. Learning more about the backstory with these relics of my childhood proved to be quite intriguing, and I feel like what we discussed was really just the tip of the iceberg. I hope you'll join me for my next show where we'll be discussing one of the most fascinating and talented alternative rock bands of the past 20 or 30 years, Radiohead. Until then, be kind, be safe, and hold on to your memories.